Coming up this week on the Pinstripe Pod, we remember New York Post sports photographer Anthony Causey, who tragically passed away Sunday due to coronavirus. His friend and longtime Post sports columnist Mike Vaccaro joins us to honor Causey. We also chat with a guy who has more World Series rings than Nelly. It's six-time World Series champion, former Yankees first baseman, and hitting coach Chris Chambliss. Hear it all next on the Pinstripe Pod from the New York Post. Welcome to the Pinstripe Pod, a New York Yankees podcast from the New York Post. I'm your host, Chris Sheeran, alongside my co-host, former Yankee and four-time World Series champion, Jeff Nelson. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, where you can rate us five stars and write a nice review. You can also subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mike Vaccaro and Chris Chambliss join us today. Let's get episode six rolling, everybody. Hey, Chris. Well, you know, it brings me back to baseball days that every day seems like a Monday. And that's what it is during this quarantine time, this coronavirus deal, that every day seems like a Monday because, you know, we have the podcast going on and we have some great guests. Today we have a a sad story to tell, but we'll have Chris Chambliss on later. Great guy, great coach. And I remember him back when he was a manager when I was in double A. Yeah. And Nelly, you you brought it up. It's just it's a sad day uh, for the New York Post family. Uh, Anthony Causey, Post Sports for photographer passes away Sunday due to coronavirus. You know, this doesn't really seem to hit home until it really hits home. And this took uh, a very special person away from the New York Post family. Jake Brown, our producer, also on with us here. And Jake, just give us a feel. What is the depth of this loss of Anthony Causey? It's really a tough pill to swallow. And my colleagues, Ken Davidoff, Zach Braziller, Andrew Marsh, and Mike Vaccaro, who will join us. You read it in their stories of what this guy meant they've honored him incredibly and 26 years of shooting photos and at 48 years old just to think of him passing leaving behind his wife and two kids is just heartbreaking and the scenario it's around is you know his family can't even see him or his wife in a hazmat suit to see him where he's in a coma and could not even understand what she's saying so it is just uh really a heartbreaker and i've seen stories from a friend of mine zach braziller at the post and you see the pictures and you see the iconic photos that he left with the Mariano photo coming out of the bullpen, a Mello photo, the photo of Jeter tapping uh, the, in the tunnel on the, the sign in the tunnel. So his photos are iconic. The Eli photo with his kid after the final game he started with the Giants. So it's an endless amount of photos, but really it's the stories that you hear from these people and Curtis Granderson and Jose Reyes and uh, Didi Gregorius. He had such a strong relationship with players because he was just the nicest guy. And I think all of us agree that we wish we knew him. We wish we were friends with him after reading all these tributes you really wish you were but I know Mike Vaccaro will will shed some light for us and you know he knew him very well and just thoughts and prayers to his wife and his family and his friends and uh, everyone involved it's a sad loss and at 48 this coronavirus has really hit home for all of us yeah Jake uh, well said and as you said a friend of his and colleague longtime New York Post columnist Mike Vaccaro joins us to honor Causey now and Mike just coming off what Jake Brown said there about how long Anthony worked at the post and how many iconic photos he took. Let me ask you, someone who was very close to him, Mike, what is the depth 
of the loss of Anthony Causey at the New York Post? Well, Chris, it's incalculable. It really is because he was one of those guys who was always there. Uh, he was the hardest working man in the entire profession as far as I'm concerned and one of the most gifted artists you'll ever see. There's two things that really struck me about Anthony and being around him as often as I was. Uh, one is how much trust the athletes that he took, uh, you know, whose pictures he took had in him. I mean, people uh, who wouldn't entrust anything to anybody uh, were perfectly willing to entrust Anthony with these pictures because they knew he would do right by them. And also so many times, there are literally thousands of people in New York and beyond who Anthony would stop at ball games and would just take their pictures because they could, he could tell it was an important moment, maybe their kid's first game at Yankee Stadium. And he would take their pictures. He would take a hundred pictures until he got the one he wanted. And then he would send the prints to the families on him. I mean, he just that, that's just what he did. It was as natural to him as breathing. Uh, this is the kind of person we're talking about having lost. And it's just hard to, it really is hard to wrap your brain around. Mike, I, you know, I've seen him a million times and it's almost uh, sad for me to say that I've never really had a conversation with him. Uh, what kind of person was he for to you? And maybe some of the memories that you have had with Anthony. I mean, the way I describe him is that he somehow had a personality that was both modest and yet larger than life. And I really think that's a, a true capture of, of who he was. I mean, you could talk to him for hours at a time about so many things, but it's just the fact that, 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 that then he would go and he would approach, you know, if, if, if the president was at the next table over, he would have no problem shaking his hand, introducing himself and asking for a picture. And I have no doubt that the Secret Service would welcome him and say, go, go, go right ahead. That's the kind of person he was. It's one thing if you can see a guy who's kind of on during a certain time when he's working. I mean, look, a lot of us, I know I'm, I'm certainly guilty of this when I'm leaving a ballpark or when I'm walking through a, you know, a, a gate that's got a lot of fans in it. I put my head down and I'm trying to get to my car as quickly as possible. Anthony was the exact opposite. I mean, he would stop. He would shake hands. People would always, of course, be attracted to him because he had about 50 pounds of equipment wrapped around him. And he would share that gift with everybody. I just can't tell you how much that was, you know, how, how much it means to me to, to have those memories of him literally. I mean, you couldn't get him to dinner because he just, you couldn't get him out of the stadium because he was around these people and they were perfect strangers and yet he treated them with exactly the amount of kindness and respect that he would treat a, a, a Derek Jeter or an Eli Manning. I, I just can't even begin to describe how, how wonderful that was. Kenny Davidoff did a tremendous job with the uh, story on him in the post Monday. And one of the quotes here, Mike, I think really summed it up. And it was Jason Zillow, the Yankees vice president of communications and media relations. He said, Anthony was passionate. He grinded, he cared and was caring, wore his heart on his sleeve. And it was a huge heart. I don't know how it fit on his sleeve, he said. And he said, people gravitated towards him. Here's where it really got me. He had an edge to him. He never wanted to have the second best photo of the day. So even though he was that boisterous and 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 laid back guy he still mike was so competitive and never he wanted to be the best at what he did that's something that really shined through in this in this article today in so many ways he was a quintessential posty and i say that that, that that's about the, the nicest thing i can say about anybody because he wasn't only good at what he did but he definitely wanted to beat you he wanted to he wanted to make sure that if the choice was between our newspaper and another newspaper that maybe his photograph was the reason why you picked up our paper and, and that's really what I think I think a lot of us uh, who have who've, who've gone through the, you know, the New York newspaper skirmishes, uh, we have a little bit of that in us. Obviously, you know, some of us have more than others. Anthony's way was to have that fierce competitiveness without ever making a hard feeling about it. You know, a lot of us sometimes, just because of the nature of the way we do things, I mean, you know, we, we lose friendships or we have, we make enemies, even if enemies seems like a hard word. There isn't any, anybody who ever felt that way. I'm sure even the other photographers who sometimes would look at Anthony's work in the paper the next morning and say, oh my God, how did he get 
get that shot, never resented him for it. And I think that, you know, it, 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 it takes a pretty special quality to be able to say that at the end of your life that, you know, I, I just don't think that even people who would be inclined to have not wanted to like him or to enjoy being around him, they couldn't help themselves because that's the kind of guy he was, even if he was eating your brains in with the kind of picture in the, in the newspaper that just would jump up and grab you by your shirt collar. You know, Mike, maybe this is a, a good thing to say about him and describe about describe uh, the way him and maybe other photographers around the league. I mean, you, re you read what you guys write, but to see the pictures and, and the picture tells a thousand words, would you consider maybe an unsung hero of the of the post? And, and maybe everybody's just really, hey, there's a picture, but let's read what the what they have to say. You know what, Jeff? That's such a great point. It's funny. I would I would always talk with him, and I would always joke with Charles Wenzelberg, who is Anthony's dear friend and every bit as talented as he is. And I would always joke about how, you know, in, in my case, my column photo was, you know, it almost seemed like I took up half the page sometimes. And their photo credit, you almost had to, you know, go out of your way to look at it and use a microscope because that's just the way that the way it is. The photo credits are, are in very small type, and you know, column sigs are fairly significant. Here, here's the here, here's the thing about about the best of the sports photographers. And I would certainly include Anthony and Charles at the head of that conversation. You know, last December when Eli Manning plays his last game at, at, uh, at MetLife Stadium, all of us are trying to figure out the proper way to describe it. We're falling over each other, trying to write the perfect paragraphs that will capture the moment. And in one click of a finger, uh, Anthony, the picture that you referenced earlier about well, him hugging his daughter, I mean, that's what people remember from that day. That is the image, that is a singular moment that people remember from that day. I mean, I can't even remember you know, three sentences I wrote from that uh, from that game, but I certainly remember that photograph. And I think that tells you of the impact that photographers have, and the great ones can really touch in a place that hardly any other medium can do. Yeah, Mike, and you know, it goes to his Twitter page. The last line on his Twitter page, the quote from Mark Twain. I think it sums it up perfectly what you just said, and it's the quote that says, "You can't depend on your eyes if your imagination is out of focus." I think it's safe to say, Vac, that Anthony's imagination was never out of focus. You know. What? Chris, for those of us who write columns for a living, there's kind of the, the holy grail column ever written was one written by Jimmy Breslin uh, after the Kennedy assassination on a day when every other journalist in the world was crowding the Capitol and, you know, trying to basically writing the same story. He went and he talked to the, to the man who was going to dig uh, the president's grave and wrote a column around that. And that's, you know, all these years later is the example of what you do when you're just trying to tell a story differently than everybody else with a pen or a notebook or a typewriter. And the thing is that that's the way Anthony did his, did his job every single day. You know, I know Kenny Davidoff talked about this. Uh, the two of them wrote several colorful stories about Yoena Cespedes through the years. It was it was Anthony who was able to convince Cespedes to let them visit his ranch with him and take 100 great photographs. But another Cespedes story is, you know, the, the year before when he first came to spring training in these fancy cars. And look, I mean, everybody else was just kind of waiting by the gate, waiting to see what, what Yo showed up with, what car he showed up with any given day. It was Anthony who actually asked him for a ride. And so... He was able to put together a photographic essay of what it was like to be inside one of these crazy, one of these crazy cars that, that Yo was driving. And only Anthony would think to ask that. Only he would have the courage to ask that, and only he would have the the, uh, the charm to be able to convince Yoenis uh, Cespedes to do that story with him. And I think that speaks volumes to who he was and just what he was able to do. Our deepest thoughts and condolences go out to the entire family, uh, especially his wife Romina, his son John, and his daughter Mia. Mike Back, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure having you on. You're so good at what you do. Thanks for some time today on Anthony. We appreciate it. Guys, look, thanks for letting me uh, talk about Anthony. It's really been helpful for me, and it's uh, always great to talk to you guys.
Joining us now, six-time World Series champion with the Yankees, two as a player, four as a coach. He won four titles as the Yankees hitting coach in 96, 98, 99, and 2000, but he won two World Series in 1977 and 1978. So he has the four that Nelly won, plus uh, two more that he won as a player. Chris Chambliss, thanks for joining us, Chris. We really appreciate it. The first thing I got to start with is that 1976 walk-off home run in the American League Championship Series against the Royals, Chris. That is something uh, that you will never see again. A player trying to round the bases and get home and touch all the bases for crying out loud and being mobbed by fans. Take us through that. What was that like? Yeah, that was a, that was a wild time. As you know, our, our rivalry with Kansas City was really strong at that time. And, and that series is only a five-game series. In those days, you know, five-game series puts you into the World Series. And, and uh, that game had, had played out really uh, like the whole series did. You know, we had a three-run lead. George Brett hits a three-run homer in the eighth or something to tie the game. And and that's really what set up uh, this is the, the final fifth game of, of that series. And, and I'm the first hitter of the, of the last of the night. So it was kind of like a setting that, that, that was unbelievable, which started with all the fans throwing toilet paper and junk all over the field waiting for that that at bat to happen and, and so that was a long delay before I actually stepped up to the plate and uh, I hit the first pitch and I hit it out and in those days they didn't have the security like they, like they did and I, I know Nelly remembers with, with Boggs riding that horse uh, you know all the security they had around 96 when we won when they won that championship. Well, anyway, all the fans just came on the field, and I had uh, was able to touch first and second, and then from then on, there were just a mob of people at third base. So I, I just kind of just took a left turn and went straight to our dugout on first base side, got into the clubhouse as fast as I could. It, it was a wild, it was a wild time. Now, Chris, tell us a little bit because you, I get like you said, you didn't touch third. And as far as security, security didn't happen until 96 because when 95, when we were playing the Yankees in the division series, out in the bullpen, out in the left field bleachers, there wasn't any security then either because I came out my first outing in game one and I smelled like Budweiser. I had so much beer dumped on me back then. And, and Lou said, what have you been doing out there, son? You, you, you been drinking or something? And, and, and then the next day they finally had some security. But now you went in the dugout and you went into the clubhouse. Now tell us what happened next. So you actually went back and touched home plate. That's a true story. Uh, got into the into the clubhouse and, and you know, everybody's asking me, you know, that, that famous question, did you touch home plate? And I said, there's no way I could touch home plate. There's people everywhere. So um, what I did is I put, I put a jacket on. So I didn't want to go out there in my jersey. You know, I put a jacket on, took a couple of security guys with me, a couple cops. And, and the three of us went back and, and made our way through the crowd and went up there to home plate. And, of course, when I looked down at home plate, it was it was pulled out. It was gone. The plate was gone. So I uh, just put my foot on in that area, and, and then we made our way back. So the umpires really didn't see that or anything like that but, but, but that is what i did hey chris you know you and nelly could both speak uh on this now i grew up uh, uh, in New Jersey. I grew up a Yankee fan. Uh, you are one of my favorite players. Uh, I, I didn't have a lot of criteria back then as a five-year-old. Your name was Chris. My name was Chris. I, it was a match made in heaven. Uh, you, Willie Randolph, <laughs> you, Willie Randolph, and, and Thurman Munson were pretty much my favorite players. But both you and Jeff could speak to this. Yankee fans, when, when you all both won your World Series, your first one with the club, Chris, yours was a 15-year 
year gap between World Series championships. And Nelly, yours was 18 years. Yankee fans were basically champagne bottles that were shaken for 15 and 18 years, just waiting to pop. So Chris, you first, what was that championship like in 77 for you all as players the Bronx Zoo those days I mean that drought over what was it like to end that drought well it was really exciting but you've got to preface it by by the the uh the 76 season the, the year I hit the home run that was the first year that we uh went I, I got traded to the Yankees in 74 and during that time we were playing in Shea Stadium because they were refurbishing Yankee Stadium so 76 was the first year back into uh, the refurbished Yankee Stadium. So, you know, you, you could imagine the, the history and all that. And Billy Martin was our manager. So it was it was just, just unbelievable. And, and then when we got into the World Series, you know, we lost in the World Series. We lost four straight to the Reds. And, and of course, 77, we couldn't wait to uh, to get back into that series again. And that's what happened in 77. So so it was it was like we were really, really proud to, to be in that position because when you're wearing pinstripes, you, you get to know what, what that history was like. And it's, it's like unbelievable when you're at Yankee Stadium and have all those people at the stadium. So it, it was just a thrill and an uh, um, unbelievable honor to, to be a part of the 77 World Championship team. Well, Chris Sheeran, uh, you know, not to be or offend any Yankee fan as far as the drought in between 78 and, and 96. I grew up in Baltimore, so, I, you know, I, I, I just... <laughs> I despise, in a way, of the Yankees. You know, I remember the four-game series going to Old Memorial Stadium and the battle that the Yankees and the Orioles used to have. And even when I was drafted, uh, when I was with the Dodgers and even the Mariners, I mean, I I remember playing against when Chris used to be a manager out in London, Ontario, uh, Ontario in Canada, when he was the Detroit Tigers AA manager, and I was in Williamsport. Uh, we played Albany, and Buck Showalter was there at that time. And I think they won that league, the Eastern, the Eastern League there in AA. I didn't like the Yankees in the minor leagues because the way they carry themselves. And I, and I think I told the story last week that once you put the pinstripes on, then you realize why everybody despises the Yankees because Mr. Steinbrenner and, and the history that, that goes around and evolves in Yankee, Yankee land, it, it's just you, you're supposed to walk around like you're a winning team, like you're a winning person. That's all that matters. And But that 96, after 95, Tino Martinez and I, when we had him on a couple weeks ago, we didn't realize that we were going to get traded to the Yankees. I always loved pitching in Yankee State. Stadium, the craziness. Uh, I think instead of you know when babies are born in New York, you know their first words aren't "Mama and Dad." They're they're the, you're a bum and you stink. I mean that's what it is when you go to Yankee Stadium and you're a visitor. And the home field advantage. There's nothing like Yankee Stadium as far as a home field advantage. But it was just nuts in '96 winning. And and what I would like to know, you know, Chris, being a ma being a coach, being a hitting coach, and, and being a player, uh, what's the differences? I mean, obviously they are, but uh, you know, as far as the excitement and and what you know 96 men finally winning the world series again and back in your days when you won two two years in a row yeah no the, the difference is, is is pretty clear um I'm, I'm proud to be there but uh, it's nowhere near the excitement as, as, as being a, a player where you could do things you know you can do something on the field about what's going on you know where you can really play and participate uh, as a coach this is a you know, observation thing, but you're kind of proud that, that you're there because, you know, you, you may have helped somebody or said something to a hitter or something that helped them uh, do something on the field, but it's a completely different uh, perspective as, as, as far as uh, what, what it's like. I mean, I, I, it, it was a thrill to watch you guys play. And, and you know, after I left the, the club, you know, I worked for a lot of teams after after I left. Uh, 
the Yankees and and uh, I would say to 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 those players and and how you guys went about your job to to a lot of guys when when I, when I was a hitting coach for other teams because uh, that was that was, that was a special group of guys the, the the way they did it nobody wanted to be the the ringleader it was it was just everybody just doing everything together and and it, it was amazing the, the the way it turned out well Chris maybe you made an influence in this young man's future and he's going into the Hall of Fame this year whenever hopefully that happens in, in July. Tell us a little bit about Derek Jeter and the first time that he was able to break into the big leagues and, and the first full season in 96. Yeah, Jeter um, I think Nelly remembers uh, the spring of uh, of 96. Uh, yeah, right before the 96 season. We had several guys playing at shortstop. Who was who was the Hispanic uh, shortstop, Nelly, that, that had such a great spring? Uh, he was going to be our shortstop. I think and Tony Fernandez, the late Tony Fernandez. Tony, that's him. That's right? him. Yeah. Tony Fernandez. That's the name. And so Tony had a great spring, and and we, we were counting on him to be the shortstop. And I, I think he, I don't know if he got hurt or something. And and Jeter was was of course in spring training and everything. And so when the season started, they were going to move. I thought, I know what it was. They were going to move Tony to second base, and we were all having the meetings. And uh, Nelly wasn't part of that, but the meetings that we had about starting the season was I, I think Tony was hurt, and so we said, who's going to play shortstop and we said if we use Jeter we know he's talented we know he's going to be great I mean you could see how great he was going to be the problem is we, we thought that he was going to make a lot of errors he thought he was a young kid he's not ready or, and this and that and you know we, when you get down to get down to it you know he was so mature and, and you, you could tell he was just ahead of himself uh, mentally and so if he did make a lot of errors he, he would be a guy that could overcome all that there are some kids who would who would make a lot of errors and, and, and they they'd fall apart mentally and obviously none of that ever happened Jeter didn't make any errors or anything and we and we started the season with him but that was our thought we were we worried about how he would handle it mentally Chris how how good we know 77 and 78 how special those teams were I mean you guys were pretty in 1976 Thurman won the MVP Mickey Rivers was third in the voting you were tied for fifth with Rod Carew you guys were stacked in 76 77 78 uh, what about these teams from 96 to 2000, Nelly's teams? How how stacked were those lineups? And, and what were some of your message messages to those hitters? The team that was put together in 96, uh, you know, and, and of course it carried over from what Nelly's talking about in, in uh, the year before because they were in the playoffs the year before with Showalter. And, and, and of course the trade with, with, with Nelly and Tino coming to us just really solidified things because, you know, Mattingly had, had just stopped playing. I mean, I coached Mattingly in 88, so first base was taken care of with Tino, and, and, and Nelly comes in, uh, with, 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 which is really what's not talked about a lot about these teams is the, is the bullpen that we had. I mean, it was just unbelievable with Nelly and, and Stanton and, and Romero Mendoza. But as far as the stack lineup, you know, the combination of, of, of O'Neill, Bernie, and Tino, and, and Jeter, I mean, the, the nucleus of, the, of those guys is, is just is just unreal. And what made the club even even better is, is our the guys we had on the bench. I mean, we ended up with Tim Raines, you know, Strawberry. You know, we we had guys that Cecil Fielder. Those, those guys were former everyday players, and they were they were playing like part time roles on our team. Wade Boggs, Wade Boggs is at third base uh, with Charlie Hayes platooning. I mean. It was just a, a team that you wouldn't believe. And then the good news about all that is that they all bought into what I what I say, uh, just a patient but but aggressive 
type hitting. None of them swung at bad pitches, and so we we would work some of the starting pitchers. None none of them would would fish after after bad pitches, and it was it was just a style that 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 they bought into that, that and everybody did it from 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 the fourth hitter to the first hitter. It's just amazing. And you know what, Chris is is funny is you know playing going coming from Seattle and Lou was our manager then, and you know you walk up and down. Then you know when you're flying into a city when you're on the plane, uh, you know the hitting coach and especially you used to walk up and down the aisle and, and it was only okay who wants early hitting who wants to hit I always power shag so I didn't mind batting practice so much because it broke up the day but I know some people didn't mind or some pitchers didn't mind a day off as Yankees we never had a day off of hitting you know these guys wanted to hit all the time and and what I mean that had to be something special for you that was unbelievable you're right and I sometimes I'd get in trouble with with uh, whether I didn't I didn't have extra hitting or not you know there were some days you know whether we had played a late night game or something did the night before and and you know maybe maybe we wanted to give them uh, a day off Tori I talked to Tori and say yeah that's a good idea you know give them a day off and then I then I would go in I don't want to get in trouble because I'd go in and say we're not hitting early tomorrow and then guys would get all over me because because of that but you're right about that they all wanted to hit they work very hard in the cage I'm in the cage flipping to them all the time and and they just worked on letting the ball really get deep they, they it was just a such a, a really from from man to man even the, sometimes you've got a couple hitters that hit a lot of home runs that that aren't as patient as that but I mean every hitter we had even the 100 RBI guys they would they would all be so patient because they would allow pitchers to get close to them and and so they were never fooled on on these uh heartbreaking balls and, and and split fingers you know they would always take those pitchers and then they'd end up getting a walk and before you know it, that pitcher's got like a hundred pitchers after about four innings. So it was just a great group of guys, and that 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 was the secret to our success offensively. Hey, Chris, just one more from me, and uh, I'm gonna go back in 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 the time machine again because I I I I have to be a fly on. I I wish I was a fly on the wall in the dugout at Fenway Park when Billy Martin took Reggie out of that game. You played first base that game. How surreal! Was was that moment seeing him pull him and put Blair into the game? What were you thinking standing there at first when you saw this happening? You know, we were obviously, you know, like everybody else, you're just completely surprised. I mean, we're playing Boston and there's places pay any, and Nelly knows this, whenever New York plays Boston, it's, it's just unbelievable. And and so for that to happen, but but when you look back on it, uh, Billy Martin, you have to know Billy Martin. Billy Martin is the type of guy that, that if, if he feels like he's been neglected or 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 showing up on the field then then he's he's gonna get back at you and and you know he'll it ain't no way you won't know how he'll do it but but he, he he's the type of guy who, who loves to retaliate like that and and so he felt like Reggie didn't go after this ball it was a little blue base hit I think Jim Rice hit it and he hit it over Willie Randolph's head and it fell in you know in between him and and Reggie and Reggie I don't think he loafed after it he just kind of casually ran, you know, ran up to the ball he picked it up and if it was I can't remember if it was Rice or one of their players he just kept on going around the first base and, and, and he slid in the second base safely. And Reggie threw the ball in and, you know, and Billy felt like uh, like he was loafing. And so 
he immediately, Paul Blair was just sitting on the on the dugout step, relaxing, watching the game, and he sent him out to right field to, to get him. And uh, uh, so I wasn't in the dugout. I saw what happened in the dugout, but I, obviously I wasn't in the dugout. But uh, I, I mean, I, I think that they really got into it, not only in the dugout, but they went up in the tunnel too and, and got into it. It was it was just a just an unbelievable moment. And uh, but but when you think uh, if you know who if you know Billy Martin, you know he's. He's, he's feisty that way, you know. He'll, if he doesn't like you, man, you're it's the worst thing in the world. But if, but if he likes you, it's it's the best thing in the world. So it's it's a two. There's no one between with Billy Martin. Well, I, Chris, I remember I I watched the Billy Martin story on ESPN and I thought it was fascinating. And maybe uh, you know what what was it like playing for him? But then go back to Joe Torre. Who what was it like you know being in New York for him and what you saw from him? My opinion in Joe Torre was very calming. And what he did because the media level was so high and and but it seemed like you know every time you were reading something, especially if I didn't have a bad a good game, uh, it was some kind of controversy. But he seemed to take that media away. He was a manager that never said, "Hey, go ask the players." He always had an answer and gave us a chance to succeed on the field. And that was a little bit of an easy transition, I think, coming from Seattle, where we had three reporters to about 30 in New York. Yeah, you got to remember that Joe worked at, in the media before before that, and and that was and as you know, today even today that's pretty popular now. You know, guys who have uh, n- number one played on the field before, but then they went up in the media in the booth with what you guys are doing, and then and then they go back on the field, and they have a pretty good feel for for what it's like to talk to the media. Getting back to Billy Martin, Billy Martin was the best guy in the world. <laughs> To play for, I, I love playing for him. He's he's just he was born to be a Yankee manager. It, it was just you just got to know his personality. He he can he can excite any any club. Uh, you know his 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 biggest deal was of course stuff he did off the field and 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 guys lose respect for him for that. But but you got to respect everything he did on the field. He was an excellent manager. knew knew just what to do all the time. And he 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 kept he kept you up. He he knew how to keep you going. Problem with Billy is the other problem with Billy is that if he doesn't like you, then then. You know he's gonna do things like he did to Reggie that day. He, he's just he, if he if he hates you, boy, you you don't you don't have a chance because because he'll he'll try some way to bury you. You know that's that's no good. Yeah, it's amazing through all of that strife and all of the the Bronx Zoo quote unquote days that you all were able to win those back-to-back World Series championships despite all of the nonsense that was going on around the team. Chris Chambliss, it was so nice talking to you. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Such a pleasure to chat with you. Six-time World Series champion with the Yankees. Thanks a lot, Chris. We appreciate it. Well, Chris and Ellie, thank you. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap for Episode 6 of the Pinstripe Pod, our New York Yankees podcast from the New York Post. Thanks to our producer, Jake Brown, as always, for producing the show. Make sure to subscribe to the Pinstripe Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We dedicate this show to the life of Anthony Causey and send our thoughts and prayers to his wife, Romina, and his son, John, his daughter, Mia, and the rest of his family. For Jeff Nelson, I'm Chris Sheeran. Thanks for listening, everybody.